Welcome to the Dylan Experience. Today is episode 71, and I've got another special guest for you today. But before we get to there, if you haven't followed the channel, make sure you follow the channel. You stay in touch with us. You know, Keep an eye on us. Leave a comment if you want. My guest today is a licensed psychologist and a purpose coach who helps people remember their true north and rediscover what it, what it, excuse me, what makes them fall in love with life again. Through her gentle but powerful guidance, clients learn to master their narratives, break old patterns, and turn their weaknesses into superpowers. They learn to embody absolute clarity, unshakable confidence, and ultimate conviction. She is a graduate of Columbia University, certified in positive psychology, neurolinguistic processing, and hypnosis. She is also the author of the recently published book, The Bodhi, the Bodhi Blueprint, excuse me, and I'm sure she'll tell you much more about that as we get into it, but I'm excited to welcome Dr. G. Sun Fisher to the show. Dr. J, also known as, <laughs> how are you? I'm good, Dylan. Thank you so much for having me in your space today. I know uh, that the title of the book is a tongue twister, so. Did I say it right? Maybe you, you should did. say it. <laughs> no, that was perfect. That was perfect the way you um, corrected yourself. It's called the Bodhi Blueprint. And it's funny because some people that don't know how to pronounce the word will say body because they're not sure what, what it's from. But the yep. word Bodhi is short for Bodhisattva. And we can okay. talk for hours on what that means. Um, but I became obsessed with that word when I learned for myself what it means to be a bodhisattva so i'm so Tell us revved about up that. yeah Let, yeah let's I'm... just let's just start there for now okay <laughs> so the word bodhisattva depending on who you're learning it from or where you're reading about it traditionally means someone who sets aside their own enlightenment to help the rest of humanity reach theirs and the way that it's been brought to my attention through the different downloads or different, you know, going inward and meditating and learning about that theme, I've come to find the word bodhisattva to essentially mean someone who is on their path to enlightenment and know that that works only when we go in first. And then by going in first and working on our own best selves, we allow portals or opportunities and windows for other people in this world to experience that sense of best self and enlightenment as well. So I shortened the word to say Bodhi, and I call it the Bodhi blueprint, not because that's the only way to the, on your path of transcendence, you know, uh, life purpose, whatever, however you want to conceive of it, but because it helps people have a sense of like an organization of how to view life in a way that might make it efficient for us to think about, well, what does it mean to have a life purpose if it's not even a noun? Because um, I believe life purpose is a verb. But how do you go about life so that when you're on your deathbed, you know you did it right and you don't want a second chance at doing it? Right. No, it's, it, it, it absolutely makes sense because there's there's always this I, there's always this like culmination of you could call it trauma, you could call it anything, right? This all of these life events kind of I, I think ultimately culminate to a point where people are like, I need to do something different. I need to look at this different. Um, and I think the human experience kind of gets to this point of saying, I want something different. And so often I see people come to that point and have no clue where to go, have no clue. I mean, like even with, right, even with the most powerful thing that we've ever created in, in human history, the phone and the computer, that where do you start? 
right? And so I, mm-hmm. I, I love this idea. I love, and now I understand, I was going to ask you the question, why did you pick this you know, title? But now I get it, right? It's just this, it's the starting point of, you know, there's always that quote of, you know, when you, uh, men lives or mankind lives two lives, right? And when you, when you realize that you can, I can, I can never remember the quote, but they, you, basically your second life begins when you realize you don't have to live your first one or something like that. Oh, wow. Right? And so, Mm -hmm. and so like this, this book makes sense in terms of it's the starting point for when all of the culmination of negativity or hatred or pain or trauma or whatever you want to call it comes to a point and you say, I want to change. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that you're bringing it from that perspective, because when you look at the subtitle, it's how to master your fears and live life on purpose. But to your point, we can also experience life in a way, especially for those of us like you, Dylan, and me, who've gone through, you know, a series of traumas, whether it's a big T or a small T, and we get to the point where we say, you know what, I want something different. I don't want this anymore. And for you to finally acknowledge that that first life, like you were talking about with that quote, is is not a life that you have to live. Right. That decision that you're saying, I have the choice, is a huge shift in our mindset. Yeah. So for those of us on that path where we know that it's not just about the money or the fame or the bling, right, or the white picket fence, yeah. but there's really a, a bigger sense of why we're here, like why we're having this human experience. And for those of us that understand there's a deeper layer that we can dive into and expand our awareness about, it's about this understanding that we have a choice and that choice, the free will is not just a, um, a gift, but it's also a responsibility. I I think this, like, I think this lends us to a, a, a bigger conversation, like a macro level conversation on like cultural change, because I think this has been around, right? Obviously in different smaller cultures throughout the years, but I think the level that we have these conversations on an everyday scale now with things like TikTok and Instagram and you know whatever we do on this phone, we have all sorts of ways to communicate. Culture and people right now are having so many conversations that this is actually becoming like a part of the forefront of the conversation, I, I would say, is that there's more books like obviously yours has come is has come out. Mine's not that much different, right? It's 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 almost its own blueprint in a different way, right? Like I've mm-hmm. been through what I've been through, you've been through what you've been through. But I imagine if we were to compare our books, we probably have remarkably similar perspectives, right? We yeah. probably have remarkably kind of, you know, they may not be perfectly defined, but there there's boundaries in which we stay within of saying, like, you know, you need to have values, you need to define those values, you need to you know, do certain things. You need to look at your traumas. You need to look at your pain, right? There's fundamentals within those books that are similar. Mm-hmm. But that never used to exist on a mainstream line. Now it does. And that's, that's to me, that's always the really interesting part of having conversations like these because we're now having conversations that are, are legitimately and profoundly changing the status quo of culture, and that I always find that remarkably interesting. I'm a social mm. I'm a sociologist by trade. So it's like that's that's where that comes from in, in terms of curiosity. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Love that. And I wonder if we can pick that brain of yours a little bit. 
because you're you're, th- you're talking about culture, sociology, and how we are now able to find that there is this fundamental like structure that it, f- it seems like a lot of us are agreeing about. We might call yeah. it different things, right, by different words, but they mean the same thing. And I wonder if that has to do with our abilities, like you said, the technology of the phone, our abilities to actually have a microphone in front of us now and to be able to connect to people in ways that we wouldn't have been able to 45, 50 years ago. Like I wouldn't have never known you existed 50 years ago. Right. Well, and not only that, but I mean, we can be honest about this. You might not, you might not have ever been allowed to have the voice that you do have 40 or 50 years ago. Right. And that's, you know, that that's, that's part of the conversation that people will, you know, shove under the rug. Right. It's not just about having, you know, allowing everybody to have a voice. It's a, it's about there's specific parts of the population that intrinsically didn't have, didn't get the respect to have the conversation. Even now, don't mm-hmm. clearly, right? And yeah. so, like, the the capacity for people to sit in front of a microphone and have a conversation and be respected is dramatically different than 40, 50 years ago. Right. Mm, that's a and really great point. It, it's, I think it's a remarkable thing, but it's going to cause remarkable amounts of tension, stress to other people. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. I think how else do we grow? Like if we are to think about what growth actually really means, right? Biologically speaking or physically speaking, if you and I are going to go to the gym, we're going to hit the weights and we want to get bigger, we want to develop musculature, for example, yeah. the muscles don't grow unless we ha- what are they called? Little uh, micro tears, yeah. right? The only way that our muscles grow is through the tears and tears don't happen unless we have a lot of um, like constriction yeah. that needs to happen, right? A lot of the pushing the boundaries. And I don't think we can say that we are able to push our boundaries unless we are pissing some people off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I've always wanted, especially with this podcast, to like have conversations where I don't piss people off, but I push the boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. And and I've always wanted that in terms of conversations. Every conversation I've ever had, the intent was always to come to some form of understanding, not to win, not to disagree, not to shame you or disrespect you. It's, you know, gee, son, I want to push and challenge you to a point where we find a place where we may disagree and and dig into that and understand it fully because you may have you know you may have conceptualization or a perspective that i have no idea how to look at and mm-hmm. the same on my end right because we're different culturally we're different it, it, we can look at biological but i think honestly the 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 conversation between men and women is fundamentally useless it needs to be a conversation on culture first because how you grew up in your in culture it's dramatically mm-hmm. different than how I was raised in culture, right? It's not a male-female thing, right? Just because I have a penis and you have a, uh, have a vagina does not make us all that different. Certainly, there's hormonal issues and differences, but I was taught things that you were taught differently, mm-hmm. and that's important. Yeah. That's the difference. That's not a biological difference. That's how a father and a mother treated a girl versus how a mother and a father treated a boy. Mm-hmm. That's different, right? Yeah. How, how culture treats people is I think 
the the priority to have the discussion. And that's, Absolutely. you know, that that's kind of where I've stood for a long time. I just have never really been able to, I think, before the last two years, really take that into account and say, this is what I'm, this is what I'm seeing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's just the more and more I see and have these conversations, that's what I'm recognizing. Yeah. Yeah. I, a hundred ten percent agree. And I want to clarify something that you said because I think the way that I perceived it in the beginning was different than the way that I perceived it towards the end of what you had just said. Sure. So what you said was this conversation needs to happen based on our lens of culture, right? What kind of culture did we grow up in? Mm-hmm. Within that culture, though, is the difference between how different genders are treated. So Eastern cultures will treat different genders the male and the female gender differently than a Western culture might. And I think that's really important for us to acknowledge because, and this is one of those things that I had a really important conversation about with my husband years ago, where he has the white male privilege. So he doesn't know what it feels like to be marginalized because you're a woman or to be marginalized because you look different or your, your skin color is different. That's not something he can totally completely place both, be in someone's shoes because it's just not how he grew up. We right. can empathize, but that's different. So I wanted to make sure we are on the same page and your audience understands that like the gender role definitely plays a big role, influence on how we perceive the world and how we perceive ourselves. But that's, I think what you were saying is within a bigger umbrella of what this culture look like and how does that influence the way you are perceiving this world? Yeah, absolutely. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable conversation to have with anyone. Right. And I think it gets muddied with things like, and and I don't, I don't, I'm still kind of developing my perspective on this, but like, I think it gets muddied by the masculine and the feminine, feminine, right. Where people think a man has to be masculine and a woman has to be feminine. And that is just not the case. Right. I, I, you know, you, you are going to be whoever you're going to be. And the reality of life is that the emotions and the feelings are the same on both sides. You have the same emotions and feelings that I do. Right. The only difference is that we culturally appropriate different things mm-hmm. and, res- and responses and circumstances to those emotions and feelings. Um, where for some reason, anger isn't an emotion for men. Right. And so we're allowed to conduct ourselves with anger and aggression. That's not emotional though. Right. And that's, that's a cultural appropriation of whatever you want to, however you want to look at it in many different cultures. Um, But for you, right. As a woman to, to feel anger and to feel aggression, you are then, you are then crazy. How that makes any sense to anyone. I don't know. But like, that's just an example of, you know, this, this kind of gendered culture that people are misunderstanding and, and saying like, it's a male, female thing. It's not, it's, it's culture developing a concept of how you should be treated versus how I should be treated. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fucked up. Yeah. And it's not just how we should be treated, but how we should show up. Right. Exactly. This actually, 
it reminds me of, um, so I finished a 10 day clarity challenge for people who wanted to understand why they were feeling stuck in their lives. And one of the things that I really encouraged people to look at was where was their biggest resistance? So what is something that you are judging about yourself? And it was such, it seemed initially like such a silly thing, but I, it, something that came up and I kept judging myself about this road rage that I, I have. <laughs> on the highway and i'm pretty sure this is like the same wherever you go in the united states the left lane if you're on a highway the left lane is a passing lane right where you yes. are Dylan, is that true okay. yes that's so if I'm... true everywhere <laughs> <laughs> okay so if i'm driving in the left lane and the speed limit is 65 and the whole purpose of the left lane is to be a passing lane if you are going to be that jerk that's going to drive in the left lane going 55 miles an hour and you're holding up a whole bunch of traffic and you have a trail of 10 different cars behind you. I'm, I'm going to you. get it really angry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. But I judge myself so hard for it and I wondered why. And it got me reflecting and thinking about, well, is it because I think he doesn't care? Is he inconsiderate or she inconsiderate? Or, and then I really thought about it. And I think at the core of this is that um, we, we set certain rules and paradigms and structures and categories because we need to know how to expect right so yeah. we need to know people's expect or behaviors and we need to understand how we're going to expect people to behave otherwise there's chaos right. and so when male are expected males are expected to behave assertively and then all of a sudden a female steps into that same exact role does the same exact thing but now she's not assertive she's angry mm-hmm I think that creates such a friction for those of us that are in a place where the world society is changing, culture is changing, but the rules of the paradigms of the categories are trying to stay the same. Right. And it's a generational thing too, right? There's there's mm -hmm. far more resistance the older you get to culture change. And that's always that's always remarkably interesting to me. Um, but you're right. Like the the I mean, it's just it's so interesting to kind of see how that plays out. And I think what what is really interesting is, and I think you were you were kind of alluding to it when you say resistance, because I always kind of take that resistance when I, especially when I work with clients, um, that resistance is often when it's within yourself, it's all mm -hmm. often a characterization of how you were taught to be, how you were taught mm. to act, right? And so it's yeah. it's someone else's idea placed or restriction placed upon you that you've now internalized. And so ultimately, you know, one of the one of the biggest demographics I work with is women who've been abused, um, women who've been either physically abused. Uh, you could look at it like religious trauma. You can look at it domestic violence, uh, childhood abuse, um, sexual assault, rape, anything like that. Um, that's who I see a lot. And oftentimes it's it's not the trauma that's the most important part. It's the lack of expression. It's this inability to actually fundamentally express what you are really feeling, not the mm -hmm. interpretation of someone else's behavior, but the actuation of what are you feeling? I am mm -hmm. feeling anger. I am feeling hurt. I am feeling unsafe. I'm feeling triggered, right? Like these, these expressions of what is my body actually telling me what I'm feeling? Because for so much of their life, they were told to, or either either consciously told or subconsciously told that they have to suppress these feelings. They have to 
they those feelings are dismissed or neglected. And so that whole situation of expression, I find is is almost the more potent of mm. of problems within within a person trying to find you know their blueprint uh, you know in, in in the terms of your book. Um, but i'm I'm curious, like what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I am so, um, I think enlightened is not the word, but as you were speaking, I've actually never had someone introduce the theme of trauma the way that you did just now. Maybe it's because I'm a psychologist and I've been in this like bubble of psychology, but when we talk about, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) and I love that. I love your take on mental health and I love your take on trauma and I love your take on the human experience, the way that we were quote unquote taught right yeah. or conditioned to believe it and your work on pushing the boundaries i i absolutely adore that and for me as a psychologist and i'm this is the part of me that is like the old me and I, we can talk about how that's transitioned but trauma for me for as long as i've known it was your body's response or your body's response to trauma is the way that you would express it. So research is actually showing now that when we experience trauma, your body is physiologically storing that memory in certain ways, which distorts the way that you're able to harness that that life energy or chi. So when we, so for example, I was sexually assaulted multiple times when I was younger. And a lot of it I've repressed because my brain will literally shut down and not allow me to experience it again because it was so painful. And when you think about the brain, do you know the concept of the triune brain, how we have three different parts of the brain, evolutionarily speaking, right? So for those of you, um, your audience members that are listening and don't know the, the, the concept, the triune brain is essentially this theory that our brains, we think of it as just one, but it can be divided into three different aspects of us. And because we are having this human experience, we are evolutionarily wired to A, want to survive. That's the first and fundamental, most primary thing that your brain is going to do. So you have a reptilian brain, which is basically your brainstem. When that part of your brain gets activated, it doesn't matter whether or not you just had a fight with your wife. It doesn't matter what you're going to have for dinner. It doesn't matter what you're thinking about, whether it's the past or the future. If you are literally about to get hit by a car because you're crossing the street at the wrong time, you're not going to think about, well, shit, should I have had pasta yesterday? Or do I want to do X, Y, and Z for the the meeting tomorrow? Like you're literally just reacting. But when that part of your brain gets activated, Dylan, everything else gets shut off. And there's, that's like that safety mechanism because your survival depends on you not thinking about what's tomorrow. It depends on you being there right now. The next part of your brain that evolved is the mammalian brain. The mammalian brain is responsible for things like emotions and connections. So the love that you experience for your wife and your daughter are controlled or influenced by your mammalian brain. And that's also the thing about this brain is that that next part of your brain that developed also has a safety mechanism when that part activates your human part of the brain, the cerebral cortex shuts off. This is why when you're feeling extremely in love with someone you have like those rose colored glasses on and you can't think straight when you're having a really angry heated discussion with your boss you can't you literally get stupider you get dumber (laughs) when you have an emotion that's being activated and flooding your your system so the thing about trauma is that if you don't feel safe so you're being raped and your brainstem activates 
there's nothing else that you can cognitively tell yourself, whether it's in that moment or any moments after, that's going to help your brain, your body, your nervous system to actually feel safe. So for me, when I think about trauma, there's, yes, that piece of, well, can I express, and again, that's such a beautiful way of looking at trauma. Like, have I been able to express it fully, completely, thoroughly? But there's also that piece of, well, do you even know that you can tap into the part of you that needs to express it? Right. And that's, I think that's the hardest part is because I I very much, I love Peter Levine. I love his work. I, I don't necessarily agree on everything that he says, but I think so mm-hmm. much of it is is really profound, especially, I don't know if you've read Trauma and Memory, but how he talks about memory is actually, we we kind of look at memory as like a file cabinet up here. And that's completely wrong because the, the entire body has a memory, right? Yes. And so like the central nervous system, you know, you you say there's three parts of the brain. I would almost think there's four, right? Because the central nervous system is, it's brain tissue for for the yeah. most part and so it it almost has its own memory system within each part of the body um and so when you when you kind of dig into that you start to realize that there's there's disconnects through that whole central nervous system when you go through something as especially as traumatic as sexual violence because that is uh, by and far one of the hardest things that i've ever had to work with people on um, I think grief is is incredibly difficult. I think many different kinds of trauma are incredibly difficult, but sexual violence is, I think, the one of the most disconcerting and and disturbing um, kind of problems to have because it's it's so disconnecting, right? There's there's mm-hmm. almost a, a, an identity that is almost shoved out of place completely, um, and to rebuild that is so remarkably difficult. That's not to say that it's not. It's impossible. It's not. Um, it just takes a lot of work and a lot mm-hmm. of love in in, in many yes. re- regards, um, because you basically have to relearn that love is a thing. It's a real mm-hmm. tangible thing that people can actually sit with you, especially. Right. Uh, and I think it's remarkable that you're sitting here with me having this conversation for a woman to sit with a man if she was sexually assaulted by a man or other way around, right? Whoever, mm-hmm. right? To yeah. to continue to develop relationships with the the opposite sex that were the, the sex that uh violated you is remarkably difficult, right? Mm-hmm. And and certainly there are so many feelings that kind of get repressed and brushed under the rug throughout these conversations, I'm sure. Um but it's remarkably difficult to then build a connection with someone and say, you know, this is okay. This is acceptable because mm-hmm. one little thing can, can crescendo into, I can't trust you anymore. Right. I feel unsafe. Um, and so, yeah, I think like the, the, the brain and the body are so, I always look at it as a system, right. And the entirety yeah. of the system, we like to look at the mind and the body as two separate things. And I, I, it's, it's just not right. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's, I, I think it's more of this conceptual, like this whole system of, of parts and pieces and, and like the central nervous system, there's just pieces of it that aren't firing. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. There's, there's pieces of it that aren't, uh, or firing at the wrong time. Right. There's, there's dysfunction really. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a, a story in, 
uh, trauma and memory by Peter Levine that, that always, you know, kind of caught me because I've worked with a lot of veterans. There's a veteran who got diagnosed with Tourette's mm -hmm. and he went to see uh, Dr. Levine and he was like, I don't know if I can agree with Tourette's as being the, you know, as being the diagnosis um, because he had a tick that would always send his uh, head to turn to the left. Um, and basically he found that that, that tick was actually uh, post-traumatic stress. So whenever mm -hmm. he was, whenever he was triggered, whenever he was uh, elevated in terms of heart rate or anything, he would start that. Um, and so it, it became a, a post-traumatic stress issue and a, 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 a CPTSD issue. So, you know, it's, it's remarkable to see that how the body actually interacts in terms of muscles uh, along with uh the mm -hmm. brain and, and the central nervous system. It's, it's always a remarkable, uh, it's a very interesting thing to, to study for sure. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And so intricate the way that it's all connected. Yeah. And I want to talk about, cause you did say the connection between the mind and the body is not like, they're not two distinct things operating simultaneously. They're one, like they're just so intricately connected. Um, before I get to that though, I want to share, cause what you said about the the body, the nervous system, and how it's so important for us to take into consideration. Um, when you're working with clients who've had trauma or PTSD, um, it doesn't work up here, right? right? The magic doesn't, and you, the, your, your um, listeners can't see me pointing to my brain, but what we're this, this will be on YouTube as well. So some oh, okay. of them can, some of them can't. Okay. <laughs> gotcha. um, so what we're experiencing when we're experiencing the release of trauma, it doesn't happen intellectually, right? It happens in your nervous system. And I actually, it's such an amazing thing when you think about like, and people have talked about how, you know, they're on a massage table and they're getting massaged and out of nowhere, like the waterworks, cue the waterworks. Yep. Why does that happen? It, it's tr the memory, the trauma is trapped in our fascia and fascia is unlike, unlike muscles, they're like little fibers that you can't actually measure using machines unless they're activated. So like they're like not present or not existent until they're activated. And then you can begin to see that the fascia actually connects. It's the thing kind of like your skin, it holds everything inside together. Mm -hmm. So I remember stretching months ago to this like 15 minute, like meditative type of stretch, beautiful music. And I'm just doing my own thing, you know, thinking I'm just stretching my body and out of nowhere, like this grief comes up and I have no idea how to identify. I have no idea where to plug it into. Where does it come from? What does it mean? Like, why am I like literally like my whole body is convulsing because I'm crying, but it's just such a beautiful thing where we can experience the release of trauma, not just through like the conversation that you and I might have, or not just through being held and feeling loved by someone, but your body, your nervous system has to feel it. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying, Dylan, about, you know, the mind and body, they're just so intricately connected. I, I had this like aha eureka moment recently where because we're in these human bodies, we're having a human experience. And the only way we can have this human experience is through four different paths. So mind, your intellect, cognitively, your thoughts, right? How are you perceiving the world is your mind, the body physically, right? You and I know how to physically experience the world mm -hmm. through your heart. The heart is through relationships. So when we experience the human life through relationships, we say that we're experiencing human life through the heart. And then the soul, the spirit, the spirit is the part I think that as a society we're beginning to tap into, 
But when I say we can, one of the four ways is through the spiritual path to experience this human life is to actually connect to that sense of awe. Like there is a magic that exists out there and being able to tap into whether you want to think of it as God or the universe. Um, but to be able to tap into that spiritual aspect of you and all other three, so mind, body, heart, and soul, I think it's such an amazing way to look at, okay, this is how we create meaning of our lives through those four things. Whereas yeah. our five senses, right? Your, your sight, smell, taste, touch here, that creates the experiencing in the present moment. Yeah. I, it's so, it's so interesting, right? Cause like you look at all the animals on the planet, right. And you realize like, do they have the same requirements as humans, right? Do they have the same needs and thoughts that we do in some way? I always, I always think that's so interesting because we've placed ourselves, you know, and what we've placed ourselves at the center of our own universe in many ways, like humans are the masters of earth. Right. Um, and I, I it's always interesting to kind of see how people discuss that and, and converse about that, because I think that in itself places, and, and maybe this is a, a, a cultural anomaly as well with, with what technology, right. Has, has kind of brought to us it's almost narcissistic in some regards where we've, we've looked at ourselves for so long as being the masters of, you know, we're obviously we're both sitting in buildings, right. That wouldn't exist without our ability to create and craft things that we never would have thought possible, you know, 40,000 years ago. Um, but in many ways, like it's coming to a point where we are able to create anything, but that doesn't stop a, a six mile rock coming out of the, you know, the Milky Way galaxy to hit <laughs> earth and kill us all. Right. Like we're, yeah. we, we don't, I don't think we give ourselves credence in that, you know, almost that humility to say, but we can still die. Right. And, and I think that spiritual aspect is something that though I think some may be tapping into, I think it's about leadership, right? There's there's a there's an overwhelming sense that the people who are uh in charge in whatever capacity often don't make that connection or maybe it's not cool to make that connection that mm -hmm. people need to be humble, people need to be uh you know have humility in terms of how they live their lives and recognize that. Um because there's but but again, I think that's changing due to culture and how we're looking at, like, I mean, just look at corporate America right now. It's that's in, that's in an interesting place where obviously some companies are doing remarkably well, but then you have this whole culture on social media that's looking at them and saying, why do you need that much money? What are you, <laughs> what are you going to do with it? Why is it just sitting, you know, why is it just sitting around doing nothing and not helping people? Um, so I, I think that's also really interesting and again another another shift into the cultural mindset and, and having that mm -hmm. discussion is always it's always interesting to me yeah um that brings up a really great point because when we think about whichever um societal period we consider ourselves to be in it doesn't matter when in human evolutionary history we 
pluck ourselves out of or into, there are only three things in this world that keep the world spinning, right? And at any given one point in time, there's probably one that's highlighted than the others. So the three things, love, power, and death or survival. Mm-hmm. And if you put yourself in any time period of human history that we remember or we've recorded, any one of those three through those three things has been the thing that that society or that time period has focused on. And the question now is, for me, when I think about where we are now, are we in a time period where power is what's keeping the world spinning? Or is it love that's keeping the world spinning? Hmm. I would almost say that if there's those three things, it would have to be a cycle. Yes. Because I I would say that we're we're kind of in a in a both and kind of thing. Yes. Certainly, we're not in. I don't think we're in survival. Even with looking at the pandemic, I don't think that's survival. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be love anymore. Love and Mm -hmm. death. Um. I don't know. Like we're we're maybe all three because like we are in a precarious situation in terms of if if certain events happen. Um, global food supplies can completely plummet. And you, you've seen that in Sri Lanka in the past few months um, mm. where like people miss two meals and there's uprisings, right? Uh, and, and so that that obviously survival is always there, right? And that's, all, that's, that's the thing with humanity, right? Especially now. Well, with COVID, right? Right. Like s- survival is always kind of ready, to to mm-hmm. come out of the come out of the shadows and say, "Hey, everybody, here's some trauma, right? You know, here's some here's the Great Depression. Here's you know here's World War II. Here's you know COVID nineteen, um, and then obviously with sur- survival comes death, right? And so, um, I don't know. It's really interesting, I, but I I really do think, um, I don't know if love is there yet. I certainly mm. obviously see that there's there's a remarkable culture about love, but I don't think people really understand love. And and that's what through... does it mean? Yeah, what does it mean to you that we understand love? So I've asked this question a lot to people. And I'm curious because because mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to I don't want to embarrass you, but I'm gonna ask the question anyway, because yes, I asked this question, right? What is your definition of love? I'm gonna let mm-hmm. you answer and then I'm gonna tell you what I usually get in response to that question. Wow. Okay. For me, love is not a feeling. It's not a state. It's also not what keeps us bound together. I think love is what we are wired together with. Love is our ability to connect to being alive in any moment given in time. And it's not something that we can, I guess, quantitatively or qualitatively measure. And I would argue on that. But here's... Okay. So when I ask that question... The overwhelming response is, I don't know. Overwhelming, right? And mm-hmm. and and of that overwhelming response, maybe 10 to 15% actually are then able to come up with a de- definition, mm-hmm. right? And there's, there's a difference between the dictionary definition and then a working definition for how you, you know, value love in your life. For mm-hmm. me, I look at love as an action. It's an action without expectation. Right. So if I love my wife, I do for her Mm -hmm. things without expecting her to do things for me in return. Now, does that function in a, in a marriage? No, 
right? And so the, to to build a relationship, to build uh, to build a marriage requires two people to share the same love, right? To the to share the same definition of love, right? It requires me mm-hmm. and me and Val to both love each other without expectation, but then to build within the relationship the confines of the boundaries that we set forth, right? Mm-hmm. And so then we work together, right? But love is not something that requires a relationship. I can love my hobbies, right? I can love sports. I can love mm-hmm. this podcast, which I do, right? And so I give to this podcast without expecting anything returned. This, If this doesn't become a top 10 podcast in the world, I'm not going to be upset, right? If I get 12 listeners for the rest of my life and that's all I get, I'm okay because I love this. I love having conversations with people more than I love the expectations I get from it. So for me... I think it is very much quantifiable in terms of how you define it. And again, I don't think people understand it, which is why you find this, this victimhood in relationships, this, mm-hmm. this narcissism within relationships, where we're more willing to blame people and to victimize people and to harm people than we are to have conversations about what it means to define something and then say, we both have different definitions. Maybe we should separate and go, go our separate ways. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's this hallmark holiday kind of, you know, socially media, you know, social media kind of developed idea of love mm-hmm. is this emotion and, oh, I feel passion for this person, but You've never defined strings. You've never defined anything. Yeah. 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 And that's, and that's, and that's how people get hurt. And that's the thing I love about what you said. You you don't have expectations. You give without any strings attached. And for you, the benefit of giving without any strings attached is just where it comes from. It's not about what you receive in return, which is right. huge. Not a lot of people understand that. They we are given distorted blueprints love maps of what it means to love one another, to love one ourselves, but we are never given or nudged or encouraged to think about what it really feels like inside, what love is. Because your definition of love is so different from my definition of love. And it's so different from the definition of love of someone who might be in a relationship, but is so dependent on the other person for their own happiness. Right. And I think, like you said, that brings on so much pain, so much disappointment, um, resentment, Yep. victim mindset all of that yeah and i and like i said i don't think we've i don't think we as a society really understand how to have the conversation about love right which mm-hmm. is remarkable because if you look in the in the fiction section right so many books about love right there's like there's all these books about you know all different kinds of love but we never really have a full conversation about what it what is it? What is the foundation of love? Mm-hmm. We, we just don't have that, right? We have social media experts here and there, you know, talking about it. We have conversations right here, but I, I don't think I've ever seen anything that says, you know, what this is the, this is a real working definition of love that you can apply to your relationship and say, here, here's what it means. Right. Mm-hmm. And do we have that capacity? I don't know. You know, obviously everyone's different. You have your definition. I have my definition, but I think what is more important than having separate definitions 
is being able to have a conversation about it. Right? Yes. I have yeah. the utmost respect for your definition, and I assume you have the same for mine. And if that doesn't work together, mm-hmm. then you know what? I have respect for you, but I'm going to separate, right? Mm-hmm. But then it comes to the idea of if my definition doesn't work with one person, does it work with someone else? And you test that, right? It's, it's, it's an experiment, right? You test that. You determine whether is my definition fucked up maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Am I too narcissistic or am I too people pleasing, right? And then you apply what you learn and go forward, right? Well, this definition worked for a long time, but then this person's definition changed. Keep, mm-hmm. your, keep your definition, keep your value, right? Mm-hmm. Keep your self-worth and push into a different relationship that might be more beneficial. That's more focused around how you see it. Is love how for you, Dylan, is love the the bridge to connect you to another human being? No, not at all. I, I Empathy, 100% empathy. Empathy. Mm-hmm. empathy to me is listening to understand. It's mm-hmm. not, it's not this idea where I take on someone else's emotions or um, feelings or any, you know, I don't, I'm not taking on your problems. All mm-hmm. I'm doing is listening to understand who you are. Mm-hmm. And that like, it's, it's kind of a combination of empathy and respect. Both are necessary to connect to a human being. Yeah. That's, it's not love. Okay. For you though, staying connected is a similar definition of love because you talked about how you, you in know, a relationship with one another in a relationship. Right. right. Okay. I can, gotcha. be fr- I can be friends with someone I don't love. Are you sure? Yeah. Yeah. There, there, I, I've been in the military for a long time, right? For fi- <laughs> 15 years, there are some people in the military who are great people mm-hmm. in the military. Outside of the military, it scares the hell out of me. Mm. I can appreciate who they are and what they're good at. Yeah. But that doesn't mean I love that person, right? Like there are dangerous people out there that are really mm-hmm. good at dangerous jobs. Mm-hmm. but I don't necessarily love that human being outside mm-hmm. of that, outside of that realm. Right. Wow. For me, love is a very, it it's, it's a glass of water. It's not an infinite supply of water. Right. Mm. To me, it's a glass, right. I, I pour out what I want to, because that's mm-hmm. my worth. Right. I place my love in something that I very much value. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm not to me, I'm not going to pour out my love for every single human being on the planet because there are some evil, evil people out there. And Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've seen them, right. I've, I've, I've seen them firsthand and I've seen what they can do. Right. Mm -hmm. Now they probably look at me and say, I'm an evil person because of my equal and opposite opposition. Right. But I, I wouldn't, cut the head off of someone. I wouldn't execute someone, right? I believe in justice. I believe in righteousness, but Mm -hmm. I wouldn't do what some of them would do, Mm. right? I I profoundly think people like the Taliban, those are evil people, right? Because they, they, they persist on, uh, on manipulation, on control, 
on aggression and violence, mm-hmm. I would not, right? Mm. That doesn't make me righteous, but it does make me not, not that, right? And so yeah. I can compare and contrast and I can say, the Taliban, fuck no, I don't love those people, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So like, I love that you're being so real, you know, and you're stating where your boundaries are. Yeah. And given your definition of love, Dylan, that your definition is it's the action that comes yeah. from this place of I want to give, I want to pour a little bit of that glass of water. And as I'm listening to you, because I have this fundamental belief that at the core, every person that walks this planet is good and evil. At the core, I believe, I don't I don't believe that any one person is evil. I think maybe they do evil things because they're in a place of hurt or anger or a lot of pain. But I don't think that we are capable of being just really good or just really bad. I think we have a little bit of both. And there is that story with Hitler. I'm not sure how true this is, but they say that Hitler became who he was because when he was little, his father um, would not allow him to express who he really was. And he was an artist at heart. And that pre alludes to this notion that when we suffocate the expression of who we really are, then that that sense of anger or bitterness or resentment begins to grow. And that's the part of you that you nurture, your shadow side. Yeah. Does that and make I, sense? Yeah. And I and I don't I don't necessarily disagree with you in, in that in that realm. But is that realistic? Is that possible? Right? Like to to hypothetically look at the entirety of the human race and say, all we need to do is create a world of expression. Well, at some Mm -hmm. point, I think that expression is going to expand to really fucked up things. Yeah, I agree. Like uh, uh, sex trafficking, Mm -hmm. right? Pedophilia, right? That like to, to pedophiles, that is an expression of their love. And that's, Mm. to me, that's wrong. I can't, I can't look at that and say that's okay. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so there's, there's this balance that I think we have to play of what is idealism and what is realism Mm -hmm. because we can't, we can't get too far to this side because what we're going to do is we're going to brush things under the rug that with realism, we can look at and say, that is a boundary we can't cross. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I like that you said it's a balance because the human experience requires us to balance polarities. That's the only way we can experience this world, right? You don't know what hot is unless you know what cold is. You don't know what big is if you don't know, have a concept of what small is. So for as good or as loving or as kind as we can experience this life, we have to be able to understand what it means to feel trauma and pain and suffering. And I truly believe that it's kind of like a, a, continuum and in order for us to experience this life it's it's got a balance this is why people in this world who are amazing exceptional leaders have experienced incredible incredible harrowing experiences and trauma and pain and i don't think you can become that type of a leader unless you've experienced that type of past certainly I, I, trauma trauma develops mind far differently than anything ever will Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's not to say that people with trauma who've overcome it are better than other people. It's it's an experience. It's wisdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's it that's not to say you can't learn wisdom 
through the experiences of others. I think that's possible too. I certainly am. I, I think a testimony of that is I've never been through sexual violence, but I've, I've watched people work their way through it. I've sat with them. Um, and, and like you said earlier, I don't know what it feels like, but I have mm-hmm. a whole lot of empathy and a whole lot of understanding. And it's almost really beneficial for me to be removed from it so that I can speak eloquently on it um, and to help other people kind of work their way through it. Um, that, you know, that trauma can be understood from many different levels, right? I And I, I think I learned this and this is something I actually thought about today. Um, I, I lost my dad to suicide at six, but then I didn't really understand suicide until I nearly ended my, my life at 25, mm. right? To, to really fully kind of bring that circle around to me being in my father's position. That was when everything kind of lit up for me. And that's, that's a dual perspective that I never would have went through had I never, you know, yeah. put, put myself in that position. Right. Um, and, and from that point, that I think has been the most powerful thing that I've ever, that I've ever lived through, not the circumstance, but the mm-hmm. perspective that came from it to say, mm. hold on, you can't just look at it from this singular perspective that you're looking at life through. You now have to put yourself in that place. That's where my empathy really developed at 25. Mm. Um, And that's why I say connection is really uh, a a development within empathy because I can connect with you just by listening, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have to love you, right? I could could go talk to a guy in the Taliban and I could connect with him. I don't have to love him, right? Yeah, because your definition of love is to give. Right. And, And so- I could, I can connect, but at the same time, like if I'm meeting with a guy in the Taliban, I, I'm bringing a pistol mm-hmm. and I can kill him if I have to, right? Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm going to defend my life versus mm-hmm. his, right? Same yeah. applies to anybody I meet, right? I'm, yeah. I, I'm a sniper in the military, right? And so that, that dual, that duality that I live within of being a mental health coach and helping people live is mm-hmm. also balanced by this, this concept that with one shot, I might have to take someone's life. Mm-hmm. And I think yeah. that's, I think, I think more and more, that's a really interesting balance. And I, and I hesitate to say healthy, right? Cause I don't want to kill people, but if I have to, if it, if it threatens the existence of other human beings, I'm going to, mm-hmm. right? Cause that's, that's the place that I put myself. I think violence is justified in the defense of people, right? And, and, and that has to be defined as well, right? Like, I can't just say that. And then, you know, and that's what Hitler did, right? Mm-hmm. It has right. to be defined. It has to be uh, communicated through a lot of different people, right? And that's what I think um, is so remarkable about it, the United States is that we have that ability to say, this is what we should do. This is how we should do it. It's why capital punishment has slowly faded away is because culture has changed has changed to say we can't commit mm-hmm. violence to people that committed violence we just leave them in prison forever that's not to say they shouldn't be killed i don't know but mm. that's how the conversation has changed throughout the years yeah 
Yeah. Um, what you were saying about your dad and you actually coming for full circle at 25 helps me to see and really understand in this moment right now what the difference is between knowledge and wisdom. It's knowledge if you haven't actually lived it. If you, once you live through it, that's wisdom. Yeah. It, f- facts, right? Like, yeah. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a remarkable smack in the face to, to mm-hmm. sit there and realize what you just, what you've done to yourself. Right. And, and that's mm-hmm. the, that's the, always the interesting thing with trauma is like you gain wisdom after your trauma when you recognize how low you put yourself mm-hmm. in the, in the grand hierarchy of how you look at the world, how you perceive the mm-hmm. world, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and it, it, we can go back to things like sexual assault and, and sexual violence, the guilt that people place upon themselves is, is remarkable, right? Because it's so unjustified. It's so, uh, it's so unsubstantiated that someone that has been victimized and and placed under sexual violence will then look at themselves and say, I need to feel guilty. It was my fault. And that is so wrong. But you are don't- you, mm-hmm. are you talking about guilt or shame? Both. We, we can have that conversation about both. Mm-hmm. It's so, there are two very different things. And really? I, having gone through some of those experiences, I know what it feels like to feel the shame. Um, but I've actually never been there where I've felt the guilt. Of course, I guess I can, I can justify it thinking back to it in terms of why I might feel, have felt guilty. But for me, the, the shame was always the most prominent thing. Certainly. And again, right. Like it's, it's not to say it's not there, right. Or to d- dismiss it. It's just mm-hmm. not justified to put yes. yourself at such a low place, right. To place mm-hmm. all of the shame on yourself, to take all that responsibility. It's just not fair to you. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Because then you, you strip away the very nature of your own beauty, your own uh, self-worth, your own security um, mm-hmm. at the expense of protecting someone that would conduct violence and do evil things, mm-hmm. right? You'll take all of that on yourself rather than place that blame. And, and yeah. in many ways, right? Like that's, that's not me blaming victims. That's, that's me honestly blaming the people that didn't support the victims, mm. right? That didn't look at you and say, he did it. He did it. Not you. He did it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as I get to the point where I'm pointing fingers, that disempowers me. So I don't care who sexually assaulted me. I don't care who bullied me. I don't care who put me in a place where I felt my safety was not present. It's all about so the wisdom that comes from an experience like trauma only happens when you get past that point of pointing fingers, like it was their fault to going, no, I'm coming out of this because I know the strength that's inside. So the wisdom never shows up until I can connect to that strength. My question is, do you think you have to go through the pointing fingers phase to get to there? Oh, great question. I, um, I think it comes naturally. Did I have to, did I personally have to? I don't know if I had to. I know I did. 
Um, And it's not even with trauma. It's with any circumstance in life where you're saying, well, I'm this way because, right? I live this life experience circumstances because I'm married to someone like X, Y, and Z, or I'm this way because my parents never taught me X, Y, and Z. As soon as you start pointing fingers, you place yourself in a space where you say, I have no control. And I don't agree with that perspective at all. Absolutely. And I agree. But I also think it might be a necessary phase. Mm. I don't know. But that's, again, that's why I ask you the question. I I, yeah. I wonder, you know, because I, I think I've always been a teacher. I'm really good at teaching people things. Uh, I mm-hmm. started my teaching with firearms, right? I'm a firearms instructor. So I teach people how to shoot really well. Um, mm-hmm. And so I've always found that progression, right? To, to find the right steps in the progression at the right time for each person is a little bit different. But mm-hmm. when you find that progression and you give it to them in, in a phased order where people can be like, wow, this makes sense. That's when I think you get the most value, right? Or people mm-hmm. get the most value of like, mm-hmm. I'm going to teach you something, but I'm going to leave out a very specific, important, fundamental for the really advanced people. Um, but we're going to get there, right? I'm not going to teach you that yet because we need to focus on building the foundation of the skills that you need. Um, and I find, especially people pleasing, I find the effective use of blaming Mm -hmm. remarkably rare. Mm, I agree. Cause I think, I think guilt, shame, jealousy, all of these things that we mm-hmm. oftentimes label as negative or wrong are useful to us. And so I, I hate to say that they're wrong and they're bad and they're not negative or anything like that. They're words and they have a neutral standpoint at the beginning. We place this connotation that says they're bad, they're negative, they're, they're worthless, right? Mm-hmm. Because if I did something wrong, right? If I, if I called you a name right now out of nowhere, I should feel guilt and I should mm-hmm. feel shame. I think that, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's justified for me because if I do something stupid and crazy and ridiculous, right? In a, especially a public space, I should feel guilt and I should feel shame, right? Like thinking of like, for example, Will Smith, he should feel guilt. He should feel shame. Should he feel so much that he ends his life? No, absolutely not. He should change. He should apologize. He should change. He should work through his issues and he should find the next step in his progression. Mm-hmm. But to discount and 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 dismiss, you know, learning how to blame people effectively, uh, learning how to uh, use shame and guilt effectively are really important skills. They just shouldn't be taught to someone that's immediately going through trauma. They should mm-hmm. be taught later. Like once, you know, you're getting to this point of wisdom, that's when they need to be, there needs to be a conversation. Yeah. That's how um, I look at it. A couple points. So for me, guilt is I just did something bad. I did something wrong. If we can put that in air quotes, shame is there is something wrong with me. And I think there those are two different things. So what Will Smith did, I think he should feel guilty. Me putting myself in his shoes, I would feel guilty. I don't know that feeling shame is a, like you said, a productive emotion. And emotions aren't something that are taught. I think we are taught 
or not taught how to deal with emotions properly. And I think that's where we get stuck. Certainly, certainly. And, and uh, yeah, that's the, it's the processing of it. Um, mm-hmm. You know what? I, I haven't looked up the definition of shame and I'm really curious of it right, right now. Not shame less. I want shame. <laughs> I really love definitions. So shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior. Mm. So to me, humiliation is, is you have to be careful with because obviously too much is a bad thing. Um, uh, but otherwise distress be ca- caused by the consciousness of wrongdoing is important in some ways. That's a learning Absolutely. ability, mm-hmm. right? It's Absolutely. it's the level, right? And we have to obviously be careful with that. Um, yeah. But even humiliation can be effective, right? I've been in the military a long time. Humiliation is a pretty common occurrence in the in the military, um, mm-hmm. but it's a remarkably effective teaching tool. Um, doesn't always mean it's a good teaching tool. It's just an mm-hmm. effective teaching tool, and I think that there's that balance of effective versus comfortable, right? That there's always a spectrum. Everything we talk about is always a spectrum, but I think there's there's a there's a line and a balance that we have to play of do we make this harmfully shameful or do we make this shameful enough where we recognize our own wrongdoing? Because mm-hmm. I think there are people out there that without the humiliation would never recognize their wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. These emotions definitely serve a purpose in correcting behavior. Yeah. It's within the context all the time though of a community, right? Yeah. This is why this is why we go back to you know, we we can consider ourselves souls or spirits having this human experience, but we will always be bound to those things biologically that are wired within us. It's the hardwiring of who we are and how we are. Yeah. Um, where shame, humiliation, guilt, all of those things serve to correct. I'm going to take the shame part back. The guilt and the humiliation serve to correct our behaviors within a, a community so that we increase our chances of survival. Right. But the way that I see the difference between guilt and shame is that, and I think this is what perpetuates this problem that we have of people pleasing, self-sacrificing, not knowing what love really is, is this like innate confusion of, is there something wrong with me? Because we're never right. taught how to look within. Right. And that's, and that goes to kind of full circle where we have our conversation with sexual violence is there was, it was never something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. It was something wrong in that person that made that they made the choice, right? Yeah. They made the choice to do that to you. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not, you know, it's, it's not justified to say that there was something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. That's unfair to you, right? Like, and that's, that's the conversation that is often um, so difficult. It's it's such an it's an internal conversation that needs to be had. That is so difficult because you've lived your life for so long, and right, like I've I've worked with people who are fifty years old still dealing with sexual trauma from their childhood. That that conversation has been so ingrained that it's going to take years of rebuilding a definition of love and self love that can look at themselves and say, I don't have to be ashamed of myself for mm-hmm. what I went through. Yeah. It, was, it was a circumstance that was outside of my control and I did nothing wrong. 
certainly, especially when the results of that incident were dismissed, neglected, uh, you know, made to seem bad on them. Like, Mm -hmm. like the, the, the perpetrator became the victim. Like that's all of that is not, Mm -hmm. it's not fair. Yeah. Um, before we run out of time, Dylan, there's two things that I adopted that have helped me out of any experience that I've had where I feel like I have to wear this hat of victim mindset or blaming or growing resentment. The first is understanding and knowing and acknowledging that every single one of us, we are doing the best that we can with what we have and what we know. So even the people that we consider are evil or doing the bad things, they are doing the best that they can with what they have and what they know based on their experiences. So as soon as I acknowledge that for myself, that every single one of us, we're doing the best that we can based on our experiences, based on what we were taught, based on what we know, it helps me to release that layer of responsibility. Like I have to hold on to some type of resentment. The second thing that brought this home for me is to understand that life doesn't happen to me. Life doesn't happen for me. Life happens by me. So I have found myself in situations where I will feel extremely angry that I'm there. I question the universe, like, why am I going through this right now? What did I do? Why did, why do I deserve this? Right. That's all victim mindset. But as soon as we begin to experience in our lives that we have, life doesn't happen to us. Life doesn't happen for us. Life happens by us. There is this energetic frequency that you are learning exactly what you need to in order to be exactly where you are right now. Those two things have helped me level up, if you will, from that victim mindset, from that place of like feeling shame because of things that have happened in the past. Certainly. I hope that serves people that are listening. Yeah. Is that, is that, do you want that to be your answer to the, to the final question or? Oh, my takeaway. Do you want to answer that question with a different, with a different answer? So let me, let me ask the question because we're, Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Um, If uh, Dr. J, if there was one thing that you could leave the world, one message, what would that be? Mm. That message has always been for me that life purpose is not a noun. Life purpose is a verb. And if life purpose is a verb, you are purposing whenever you are showing up, pushing the boundaries and becoming the best version of yourself. I love that. I love it. I love verbs. I think, I think a lot of things should be verbs that aren't verbs, but beside <laughs> that, G-Sun, thank you. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being thank on this. Thank you so and much for having me. Thanks for having, it was a great conversation, right? I think we'll, I enjoyed feel it. Like I'm, I'm looking forward to our podcast on your, on your podcast because yes. now, I mean, we can have more conversation about, I, I we, I didn't even hear your story. We, we really only, <laughs> We're, we're probably gonna have to do this again. Anyway, I know you got to go. We all got to go. For those of you that are still listening, please go check out uh, Dr. J's website. It'll be linked below. Um, her book will also be linked below. Um, thank you all for being here. Thank you for being here. Uh, and thank we'll catch you. you next time on the Dylan Experience. Thanks, everyone. And that is it.